Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. All right, welcome to On the Tape. I'm Dan Nathan. I'm joined with Danny Moses. Guy Adami is off today, a well-deserved day that he's taking off. He's down at his alma mater. That would be Georgetown University. His son, Guy Jr., is graduating today, Danny boy. How you doing, bud? That's like a raise that um, he gets, Guy. Right, if your kids, because my kid just graduated University oh, yeah. of Miami. Oh yeah, congratulations! Yeah, your it was boy. quite a story. I want to give a shout out to him for making the graduation at eight in the morning. Uh, <laughs> I heard was, that. that. That's not a miracle. safe for work. Not no, safe it's not work. safe for work, but yeah. he did make it. So congratulations! Well, congrats to yeah. all the grads. That's you know, it's right. very cool. You know, we are down here in Flatiron-ish part of Manhattan, and it's interesting. You see all of these purple grads. They're all NYU grads. They're walking around. I went by Washington Square Park yesterday. There was like dozens, maybe hundreds of them in there taking pictures. Pretty, pretty cool. Pretty cool time. This of year. is the Rodney Dangerfield keynote moment that if you could give, oh, really? which had been, Back no, to which he wasn't, which he mean, yeah, which he would say, it's rough out there. <laughs> Stay in school. It's rough out there. I mean, it's, it's going to be, a, it's a little rough. People are getting job offers that are getting somewhat deferred, right? Yeah. From some of the big consulting firms. Which is saying, something that we actually saw, you know, interestingly, we saw yeah. that at the turn of the century when the dot-com implosion, the, the summer, century. how old are we? I know, yeah, the, no, the okay. summer, the summer of 2000. We also saw it in the summer of 2008. And those are something that you generally do not see. Let me give some advice to the people that are listening, yeah. that maybe 10 people that this falls into this category that might be listening to us right now. You can wait and start in January, like yeah. they're telling you, or you can go out and try to find something else. Yeah. I'm not saying that they're not locked in, but I would not rest on that. And I would not, because the reason I say that is, depending on what field people want to get in, specifically they're looking, whether it's a McKinsey or a Deloitte or whatever it might be, keep your brain working. And I keep saying that this is the best time. I love people, if they start on Wall Street per se, this is the best time to start. You want to be an inflection point. You want to see if there is pain coming. And the one thing I know we're going to talk about this in our interview later when we go, off the tape here. Yeah, and just by the way, we are going to go off the tape with Jim Bianco. He is the president and head macro strategist at Bianco Research. And we cover actually everything, debt ceiling, we cover what's going on in the economy, employment, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so stick was, around for that. We're I was, gonna, yeah, I just wanted to say that one thing mentioned is that credit. I mean, people should work in credit. I think this is yeah. a credit 
it's bond pickers market. I've been talking about that for a long time. Anyway, we will get into that. That sounds like a lot of fun, but I'd rather like YOLO, <laughs> uh, zero days to expiration options. Oh, or those like, are, no, yeah, yeah. Go we're going to cover that a little bit. All right. So guy usually brings us on with a song lyric or something like that. Yeah. I was just thinking right now I have like, where's my mind? And I was thinking of like the, the lyric that starts a song with your feet on the air and your head in the ground. Okay. And right now that's kind of how I feel about the economy. That's how I feel about the markets. And right now this week, there was just like this surge of enthusiasm about two things, the potential for some sort of near-term resolution on the debt ceiling, but also, and we're going to get to this because I know you got a lot to say about this, all of these massive billionaire investors seem to be really geeked up about AI right now, Danny, especially as the NASDAQ is now just above its August highs. The S&P is yet to get above its fe February 2nd highs. So there seems like a lot of enthusiasm about Debt ceiling, resolution, at least near term, and then also the thing that's been powering the markets right now is AI, and the, all the big guys, they're all in. feels like artificial intelligence is what's buying this market, because I don't really know that many people that are, which maybe is a bullish sign if I don't know anyone buying it. But let me just say that with the bank crisis, which happened in mid-March, right, which two weeks before, no one really was predicting. No, I mean, you had some people that were short some of these banks, yeah. and people, and then it gets somewhat resolved. We're still whatever, but the, I think the worst part is behind us. Then we had the debt ceiling right after that come to fruition. And it was like, oh, it's not going to matter. It's not going to matter. It's amazing news. We get through these two, quote, issues. And we'll assume that obviously we're not going to default on our debt, so there's going to be something that's going to happen. Here's the problem. both The aftermath of both things that occur are negative in terms of the long-term implications into the market. Banks are going to have to fix their balance sheets. They're going to have to curtail lending. Cost of capital goes up. That's an expense for everyone. Debt ceiling, same thing. That's going to come at a cost, whether it's a cutback and budgets and what the government spends, right? Or whether it's just the rate. I mean, they're going to raise the debt ceiling and they got to go fill it. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. They're going to raise a trillion dollars at much higher rates. And so as debt matures and new debt is issued by the government, I mean, it's a 4%, 5% difference almost potentially in the rate. And those things come and go. But the permanent aspect of those two things being, quote, resolved that no one was talking about three months ago are not good. And it's not to be negative. It's just saying it's the reality. And so we, we get through these moments and the volatility of trading and and all the stuff that's occurring. And now we're going to talk about these. Well, well the yeah. lack of volatility of trading. I mean, that, that's the one thing that I think we've spent some time on. I mean, I, I think the S&P has been in this range for the last six or seven weeks right now. And it just seems like it's just banging around. It's not really pricing a whole heck of a lot for the worst case scenarios or maybe like lesser optimistic scenarios. At least, Lloyd, the VIX below 17, the S&P kind of pinned in this kind of 4150-ish level. But the intraday volatility is big. So if you look at the intraday moves, you have some days where it's a percent. 1.2%, right? It goes up 30 handles, the S&P down 20, close to five. And that's, you know, a lot of things where people point to these, what do they call ODTE? Yeah, these, zero days these, to expiration these. options. And so like, for instance, you know, again, there's, there's margin implications. It's like, I think people are saying it's just like a lot of side betting that's going on. And so you're having intraday volatility, but it's not resulting in any volatility outside the sort of norm that you would expect, especially given all of the sort of headwinds. And, you know, I think this is kind of interesting to me, Danny, is like, this is Thursday into the close at February 2nd high and the S&P 500 was 4,200. Okay. And you and I have, have talked about this a little bit, this consolidation below that, if you you are inclined to be bullish, if you're inclined to think this debt ceiling thing wasn't so bad, earnings in Q1 weren't so bad, maybe the guidance in Q2 or for the balance of the year is probably overly pessimistic and we can kind of beat that and maybe we've normalized rates and maybe inflation is broken and maybe this economy can deal with a 3.5% unemployment with like steady wages. I mean, that's kind of the bull case scenario is that what happened in 2022, a down 20% in the S&P 500, a down 33% or so in the NASDAQ discounted what was going to be a rocky economic year in 2023. That's something we can get our arms around if we think that markets are forward discounting mechanisms. 
Jim Bianco is going to get into this, and he yeah. talked about kind of the bifurcation and the changes that have occurred, permanent changes potentially in the economy. And so here we are going into a slowdown. No one's refuting that we're going into a slowdown. The question is, people, what level? How do we emerge from that? We've talked about Walmart now on the show for two years. We talked about that they would be the beneficiary of people, quote, trading down. You saw it in their numbers today, right, at the same time. And I want to go back to the comment on the intraday volatility. I think it's important. Hedge funds get paid on absolute performance, not relative performance. And this is not a good tape for them because they're getting caught in the intraday volatility and their hands are being forced in things. Now, the smart ones that have longer duration capital can kind of trade through this and the noise and use the up moves as selling opportunities, the down moves as a buying opportunity. But people are getting chopped up here. And I think the, the level of frustration, and I feel like we say this every single week, Dan, it's getting to a point now and we're still stuck in this in this range here. So you know, back to the point of where we're headed in the economy, we talked about it. So Q1 earnings will end up, we're, we're now past the Q1 earnings because remember, retailers, the Walmart, they're April 30th quarters, right? So we're a little bit past that. They're going to come in in low single digit decline, right? On the earnings. I don't know what FactSet's saying it's going to be for, end up being for Q1. Expectations were potentially six to 7% down. It's probably half of that, I'm guessing, is what it might be. That's better than expected, fair. But again, we're seeing a lot of guidance in Q2. And again, I go back to, the mixed messages that are coming out of the market. On one hand, you got home sales, which we know are slowing. We know median home prices are starting to drop, but there's not a lot of transactions, so it's not having an impact, right? We know that when the Fed does start cutting rates, whenever that might be, it doesn't have the normal stimulus impact that it would have because people aren't going to refi. They're, they're in at 2 to 3%. They're going to stay higher for now. And then all eyes on the Fed tomorrow. I mean, so Powell is speaking with Bernanke in Washington tomorrow, and there's been a lot of Fed speak this week. And here we sit. We're now 35 40% chance of another 25 basis points. So as the banking crisis gets, quote, resolved and the debt ceiling gets resolved, guess what, people? You're opening up the door potentially to give the Fed an excuse to go again. So, you know, I think we're kind of still stuck in this range. We've yet to pierce your point to the highs of February 2nd. But the irony of February 2nd is, Dan, every day does feel like Groundhog Day. Yeah, well, you know, you introduced this name. I had not heard of it. Laurie Logan. She's the Dallas, yeah, Dallas. Fed. Pred okay, you mentioned her. I think She actually replaced the insider trader, which was nice. Yeah, yeah well, yeah. right. Yeah. Okay, so, so, but, uh, but, I mean, she mentioned that this week she was on the record basically saying that, you know, what she's seeing does not actually make the case for a pause at the June meeting. And, and so, like, it's interesting that there still seems to be a debate among the Fed whether they are on the right path. And we talk about this with Bianco, and at some point the Fed is going to actually have to readjust their expectation for it inflation going forward, especially if yields are going to remain higher for longer for a whole host of like technical reasons. And remember, she was at the New York Fed. She knows the open market operations. She will be, we will hear a lot about her as we go into whatever we NQT or whatever. And I'm, people should stick around for the Bianco interview because he touches on a lot of stuff and that, not bearish or bullish. I'm just saying very smart thinking the way that he's thinking about it. And he makes a great point about the CPI numbers, which are going to be coming up against comps that are going to look like going up against really high comps as far as inflation in the next two months. And it's going to look like inflation has cooled dramatically to the 3% type level. So again, maybe that's what the market's anticipating here. And it's going to, you know, maybe trade on it short term. So a lot of moving things here. All right, let's talk about some of these billionaires. We started out the week. Paul Tudor Jones was on Squawk Box on CNBC. And he said, basically, I think the Fed is done. And I think the stock market goes higher from here. We've had Steve Cohen, who's a 0.72, owner of Guy's second favorite baseball team in New York. <laughs> Steve Cohen, legendary trader, like where, you know, like Tudor is known for a legendary commodities trader, macro 
trader. But Steve, it's I guess he was at the Salt Conference, which is also actually co-hosted by our partners, iConnections. And he said, I think it was in a private meeting that he's really excited. I'm paraphrasing, really excited about AI. You know, he just basically thinks that people are too bearish right here. Coming from a guy like him, I think that's really interesting because he's a guy who's known to be able to turn billions on a dime, right? Like, and so he's got brilliant, brilliant, I'm sure sector people, single stock people, macro folks, quant strategies. He has the benefit of all of this stuff. And then he's like the Michael Jordan of trading. And I just think it's really interesting because, you know, I started my career 25 years ago at SAC Capital. I said- It has to be 26 by now, because you've been saying 25. All right, well, uh, I'm kidding, I'm joking. 1997, 26 years. There you go. Okay, so so (laughs) my my point is, and and, and you know what's interesting about him is that like, you know, he probably couldn't pick me out of a lineup right now, okay? So he doesn't remember me, but I remember sitting in there, I was like, sponge. I was looking all around this room of like 30 guys and there were 30 guys and one woman in the room. And I just remember like what he was doing then on $600 million versus capital versus probably now 20 some billion or something like that. I think that, you know, they, they would change their minds quite frequently about things where they would ride a momentum wave and then they would kind of come out of it. So when you hear someone like Steve saying something about, you know, this huge bubble that is amassing in the equity market to the tune of trillions of dollars, if you look at it through the market, market caps of Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Apple, NVIDIA, and there's probably a a few more that I'm missing here. All of these things will mean revert at some point. They will be discounting the potential gains that all of this technology that no one really understands right now, how it's going to be implemented throughout their products and services and how they better monetize it with their customers and the like. Okay. So to me, I just don't put a lot of stock in that. I'm not telling you I am fading. You can say, who are you to fade that? I'm just fading like what seems to be a overly bullish narrative right now at a time where all of the excitement in the entire stock market seems to be in these 10 stocks. So most of those 10 stocks have a quote AI feature to them. Two have a big one, maybe three actually have a big one to them. And so if you can rationalize and say, I love AI, I think it's here to stay, you you can then rationalize those valuations and you you make yourself comfortable with them at what are probably 30 to 40% higher prices and they should be trading based upon their historical ratios. And you've talked about this before that X out those stocks. The market's done nothing this year. It's, it, you've talked about the Russell 3000, right? You've talked about the 2000, where we are. There are probably a lot of great stocks that can still be bought that will have, that do have good businesses that are being left for dead because of the concentration. And so people understand that hedge funds use leverage, right? They gross up their books and they, they have something called a net position, which is their long minus their short position, what their nets might be. And I'm sure that a lot of these macro funds are sitting around and they're looking for an excuse right? To put dry powder, so to speak, to work. They get paid to do that. And you can feel the frustration because they, they're seeing things go potentially without them. They're capitulating and buying them. They may be right at the end of the day, but you're right. We've got Paul Tudor Jones out there talking, Drunken Miller talking. And by the way, I got called out on Twitter, Guy and I both saying Drunken Miller because maybe I had had a cocktail. I don't know, but it's Drunken Miller. So I apologize yeah. for that. I also apologize for PayPal's PE, which I think I misquoted. I think it's 20, not 30 times. Um, I think I mentioned 30. Just want to get that on the record. I like to, you know, but anyway, so I think there's a lot of people that are voicing their opinions. And to me, when you start to see, and I listen to all of them because they've been experienced to your point, they're confused. And the ones that are saying we're okay, the market's okay. Doesn't mean it can't trade down 20%, but something's going to give here soon, Dan. Well, it's interesting. Okay. So when you think about just like a, a drunk and Miller, um, yeah. and not a drunk and Miller, yeah. uh, you know, I'm the drunk and Miller. So, right. so they'll put this in the show notes here, but there was an article from the spring of 2000. It was talking about when drunk and Miller was at the Soros fund. Okay. And they were short tech stock. They did not buy into the internet hype. This was like 98, 99. And I think they talked about a few hundred million short position in NASDAQ stocks. They lost a half a billion 
dollars or something like that. And then they turned it around and they bought six billion dollars in tech stocks. They were one of the reasons why you had that sort of blow off top into the end of '99. And I remember it. I remember it in Qualcomm. I remember it in Yahoo. I remember there was a guy on our trading desk. He was a, an engineer by training. He worked at a telco company, and this is what hedge funds did back then. They hired guys like that to understand the technology to make them feel better about buying a stock at 50 times sales and something like that because they were going to change the way telephony worked and this and that, whatever. And this guy stood up at one point in December of 1999 and said in broken English, and I'm not going to do it because you guys will probably try to cancel me. He said, the market's never going to go down again. He just screamed it. This is a guy who didn't know a stock from an ETF from an option or anything like that, but he knew technology, right? And so it was just amazing to me, right? And I remember it there. And if you shorted it right there, you got your balls blown off. I'm just telling you, okay? But then a lot of these guys piled in and they caused that move, okay, in the NASDAQ. And what happened? They thought the first pullback in the mid-March, right, into April or something, they thought it was just a pullback. That was they the actually, NASDAQ 5000. When right. it and they actually bought more. Right. You know what I mean? And then it kept on going lower. And then there was no incremental buyer other than them. And then when the narrative shifted, they all had to puke. And then the Nasdaq lost 80 some percent of its value. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen here because all those companies that we mentioned that make up 50 percent of the Nasdaq 100. And there are seven of them almost. OK, like when you think about it, these companies have tremendous monopolies. They have moats. They have these crazy balance sheets. They have management. They have the, everything. OK, so the point is in a Microsoft, could it go from 30 times to 25 times, and might that put a big hole in your portfolio if that happened over a six-month period or something like that? Or Apple, the same. Like, So my my point is, like, all those risks still exist. Just because all these billionaires who've been around forever and get, you know, they speak once a quarter, they say these things, they sound brilliant, and you follow them, it does not mean that they're actually doing right now the thing that they just said or they were quoted at doing. And that's just really important. And I'll just go on to say that the Soros Fund lost billions of dollars chasing tech at the end of this bubble. You know what I mean? So it can happen to the best of them. Listen, they're around still for a reason. They're successful traders. And you're not going to be right all the time. You don't, ha- you don't have to write all the time, right? You got to make bets from time to time and get a few things right, I should say, over time. Paul Tudor Jones was making the case, and he's not wrong, that the supply and demand of, sorry, there's not there's no IPOs really, right? There's not a lot of follow-on off. That being said, they're all kind of, back to what you just said, piling into what they believe is, quote, safe, throwing valuation to the wind. No one is saying these stocks are cheap. They're saying that they're they're great companies, and no one's refuting that. But to your point, when the momentum ends and starts, it will feed on itself the opposite way. Right now, it's a FOMO, right? It will feed on itself. And when that happens and stocks start to trade down, what is the bottom? What is the point where you say, oh, 25 times, 20 times? You know what I'm saying? So these companies, the same companies that are trading like this, are laying people off. Like, And so what does that say? They're saying they're becoming more efficient. They have room to cut, right? A lot of the hiring that went on, COVID and stuff that has been occurring, they, they were too heavy. Right. And it's the white collar jobs that are getting laid off in this country right now. Right. It's the blue collars are crushing it. It's the white collar that are starting to get laid off. It's not going to happen tomorrow. And again, the ODTE and people like everything's been fixated on immediate gratification and the gamification of the market. And by the way, we'll get into the sports gambling stuff later with a Preakness pick and then some other gambling stocks. NVIDIA reports next week, and so this is going to be the last major tech company, and this is a stock that has gained $400 billion in market cap just this year alone. It's up more than that off of its lows. And when you think about it, this is all excitement around advanced chips for AI systems, right? And so to me, when I look at this company that is expected to grow earnings this year, let's say 30%, 35% or so, 30% um, next year, 25% revenue growth, that is truly astounding, okay? And if you think that they are at the forefront of this huge transformation in technology, fine, I buy all of that, but it's not happening this year. Like all of these gains are not gonna be realized. So it's trading 70 times earnings, 26 times sales. Again, this is a $750 billion market cap company, and this is 
not a dot com that doesn't have any earnings. You know what I mean? That that is at the whim of the sort of enterprise spending or you know like consumer spending that could turn on a dime because you know e-commerce is five years away or this and whatever. There's going to be demand for these chips. It's also important to remember when you think of the narratives around this stock and the volatility around this stock over the last five years. It was crypto mining. It was metaverse chip spending, data center, whole host of other things. You know, and this could be that thing. And I'm not saying you should short it, but on a day like today, it's up five percent in a straight line. It, it, I mean, the people are tripping over each other. Shorts to cover and longs to get long. It's five percent from its late 2021 all-time highs here sooner or later. And I get it. You know, I know a lot of you guys think that trees grow to the sky, but like in the stock market, gravity usually prevails right here. This one seems dangerous into its earnings because I just don't know what sort of quarter and guidance that they can put up that is going to continue this rally individually in the stock, but also in this NASDAQ bubble. Give them credit. I mean, they've created a business that serves many different industries, right? That has been the right place at the right time. And they've done a decent job. The point you just made I've never been short NVIDIA. I wouldn't be long. I, I am right now. I'm okay. I've never. Yeah. But my, my point is that it's a good company in the right sector at the moment. And at some point, it, it'll come in, Dan. It's inevitable that I would think that I don't it'll know come if I'm in. Ha- I don't know if I have any money But left. I didn't short I Netflix know, I don't know if I have any money left. I didn't, I didn't uh, short Netflix back in the day. Still, really, here and there, I buy puts from time to time because the macro on streaming was so strong. It's like you want to get in front of the macro train. And until you know this market decides that it's done, I'd rather short... Nvidia down ten or fifteen percent. Yeah, then try to catch it. Then, then try anyway. So that's yeah. And I want to make a point. So Netflix yeah. is up ten percent today. Okay, so Netflix is very near <laughs> its fifty-two week highs. Netflix is up. They must know, be streaming on the tape. Well, yeah. Netflix is up twenty-six percent of the year. It's up a lot more. It's up over a hundred percent off of its lows. But here's a company that people had a lot, a really hard time with valuation for years. And you know, some of these stocks, Tesla is one of them. Nvidia is one of them. Some of them can defy. You know, like Amazon did it for years and years and years, right? And so when you think about a stock like this where people are going to start valuing on the out year. So 2024, pretty soon, expected to have 29% EPS growth next year and 12% sales growth. But here's the thing. Why is the stock up 10%? At Upfronts, they announced that they had 5 million subscribers to their ad-supported network. Now, some people thought that was really bearish when they first announced it, right? They were like, oh, they're so desperate. They're losing so many subscribers. There's so much competition for these streaming subscribers. There's only so many you know subscription services that people have, and they're still spending a shit ton of money on original content. So they said, after they said for like 10 years, they were never going to do ad supported. They're doing it. Now they have 5 million subscribers. And all of a sudden I keep hearing this, you know, there was a story about Instacart. They had $730 million in ad revenue. Uber has over $500 million. Like all of a sudden ad revenue is really good. You know why? Because yes, it's cyclical, but it's really high margin, right? And so if you have other parts of your business that tend to be- Oh, they're coming from a growth of zero too. That's that's right. So off those, those, those. So, so like to me, like I get those stories and I get why, um, like, like markets or investors react to them. And it's not a bad story. And it's not that expensive a stock on next year. It's trading about 26 times earnings. That's about as cheap as it gets for Netflix well, you also, think over the last 10 years. ESPN, I think, announced today that they're basically leaving cable and they're going to go to streaming only. That's a death nail for cable. I mean, that's people, people at the end of the day, they have 200 channels. They watch five, 80% of the time. And that's one of them, at least, you know, for some people. And so the trend is still there. The kind of macro wins are behind them. And they've done a decent job of literally from where they started their business and the news a couple months ago that they mailed their last CD or whatever those. Yeah. 
DVD. Guy wouldn't even guy. Guy dummy. Yeah, exactly. So listen. Well, well, I'm just saying, if you're buying Netflix right here up 10, percent then you should go buy Disney. Okay, because like if Bob Iger is going to make this sort of transformative move, because that was the cash cow, right? So like these network fees that they got from these cable, like like to your point, a lot of people were paying for ESPN. They don't even watch ESPN, so it's going to be a hit near term, right? Because they're going to get lose a lot of these fees. But you know, on the out year, I mean, this stock is trading 17 and a half times, which is well below the multiple it used to trade pre-pandemic. It was like a low 20s sort of name. Let's bet on Iger right here, I guess. I think Hulu is too expensive. As a matter of fact, I just canceled my Hulu and went to YouTube TV, which is better. Hulu started to do like you have to be in one location. Like they really- You don't so know you, how to use a VPN, Danny? It's It's expensive. Yeah. Hulu's expensive. When you start that off, I cut the go. I mean, I don't have a cable. 170 bucks a month Hulu. Is well, that's with your to. internet too, though. So like if you think about it, my Hulu is $80 and I get everything I would get on cable, but I'm still paying my local, yeah. you know, like internet companies. It's always going to be the same. It's just like, I want the hardware. I have an enabled TV. So like, you know, it's like the interface and like the original content. Hulu's got some good stuff. You can find it on other things. All right. What else do you want to do here, Danny? So we talk about- Consumers trading down, whether it's the streaming services. I just mentioned before in the show about Walmart. They've done a great job with their inventory. They have the right inventory. They know people are coming in and buying groceries right? yep, and yep. fueling their cars. So there. Like, yeah. just to be really quick, like fifty percent of their sales are basically groceries. So like Walmart's the biggest grocery yeah, store. Yeah, but that's in how they get the people in. And they're saying private labels still doing extremely well. That tells you the people are trading down from the brand names. We know they've been taking market share from Target. That was evident in the Target numbers, and they really compete head to head. We saw Home Depot, right? What they're saying, I would pay attention to that as well. The cycle's finally caught up with them as well. And the mosaic, again, continues to be consumers are still spending, but they're spending smarter, right? And they're conserving a little bit more, and they're dealing with what they have to deal with. They got to buy groceries, right? You have to buy the certain things. Walmart's done an amazing job for a company that big to be able to improve their margins, improve sales, and run through their inventories. Give them credit. I mean, that's a behemoth of a company now. So I was impressed with that, but it, what does it tell me? Again, let's talk about what we talked about, the white-collar job world versus the blue-collar job world. And the majority of their clientele probably falls within the blue-collar category to a degree. They're getting more white-collar people, right, that are coming in to shop there per se. But that's part of the economy and strength. But what else is it telling us? It's telling us a discretionary spending to me from the consumer. You know, I think we've gone through this kind of post-COVID boom, let's say, on services and leisure and hospitality. It has a lot of mixed messages, Dan, that are going on. But Walmart was extremely impressive here. Yeah, no, it's Crude oil is one of those ones that it just, if you look at the chart, you look at the price action, you say that like the back of crude oil has been broken on from an inflationary pressure. You look at gas at the pump where it is year over year versus last summer. I mean, I think that is is somewhat um, encouraging. And, and I just, you know, some of the stuff that we heard out of Home Depot, we heard it out of Costco. Like Costco was really one of the first in this cycle to talk about this trade down here. So we're seeing that. To me, I feel like the consumer has been waiting a little bit to see the unemployment rate tick up a little bit, right? Like it's been waiting for all of these recession calls to maybe come into some sort of clarity, right? When we look at Q1 GDP, I think it was tracking just above 1%, right? It wasn't particularly great. Now, nerds like us, we're looking at the earnings recession. We've had two consecutive quarters of S&P earnings declines, right? So usually you would see a recession that follows that in the economy, right? So a lot of consumers are still out there spending. They're doing little things on the margin, the trade down and everything like that. So I'm just 
just curious, what would be the thing, you know, and we get asked this question all the time. And I thought we had a really, really good, constructive conversation with Jim Bianco. Danny, we're, we're kind of at this, you know, right below this 4,200 level right here. Okay. So if the S&P were able to break out, the NASDAQ has already gotten above its, you know, highs going back to last August. If the S&P were to break out and we've seen the 10-year yield kind of tick up a little bit, it was as low as 3.3% just a few weeks ago. Now we're at like 3.65. We have crude oil down. We have CPI readings coming, you know, trending lower. What would it take for you to say, you know what, I'm going to kind of put my particularly bearish economic view to the sideline here, and I'm trying to figure out how to get more constructive on the broader economic outlook, and therefore the market might have already discounted that. Like, like, is there a thing that you can do? Because to me, technically, and we've talked about it on the pod, the S&P chart has looked constructive. You know what I mean? If we didn't know all the things that we focus on on a day-to-day basis about what we think we know about the economy and everything like that, that's a chart that you'd probably want to buy for a breakout. We're just now beginning the lag impact of these rate hikes, and they were massive. I mean, in a in a 15-month period, right, 5%. I mean, that's, that's a big, big number. And so the impacts are occurring, Dan. They're occurring in auto financing. They're occurring. You're, you're seeing it. It's seeping its way through to various companies' balance sheets. It's seeping way through, and it's happening. Now, you look at the S&P as a whole, and people still have to put their money to work. And when there is inflation, all assets go up, including stocks, right? Because on an apples-to-apples basis, you're chasing 5% return already. So if you're up 9%, you're up 4 right, on a net basis, so to speak. And people are still waiting, I think, to say, okay, well, if the Fed's going to cut, I'm not going to bother putting my money right now in bonds. I miss, quote, maybe miss some of that treasury trade. Now, short-term, you run the risk of debt ceiling, like really short-term T-bills. We've seen that, right? I think, Dan, people are looking at an excuse, if you want to put it, to buy the market, not to sell it. Now, it doesn't necessarily bullish or bearish. They're waiting. And the more that this continues, and if the breakout does occur above, back above 4,200, they have to chase the same way they did in January and February. And it is what it is. And they'll just move higher. And I'm still standing by. I don't know if we've blown through the February 2nd highs, but they've touched it like three times, you know, in the last few weeks. At some point, it probably will go through it. And let's talk about gold for a second because Guy's not here on his behalf. It's amazing to me how the narrative can shift so quickly where gold literally sells off for 80 to $100, right? In a period of two weeks, Dan, or your chart says there, all the things are still lined up for gold completely. Like there's nothing to me that's changed. I know we got a strong dollar that's come in and people traded on that. But if you were waiting to buy gold, in my opinion, nothing's changed. You should be going by the dips right now. The dollar is having a huge impact. Look at the yen, Dan. Well, you have it there on your little fact set machine over there. 139. Now, that thing is weakening, right? Euro, 107. Like, there's a lot of moves now going on behind the scenes. And a lot of stuff happening in Japan. Their stock market, is, we've talked about that before. Shout out Peter Bookvar, who has been talking about owning Japan for a long time. The assets potentially coming back there. A lot of things, a lot of great markets to trade, to be honest with you. And so you're not going to make me put a bullish hat on. But it, the longer this goes on, right, and there is no, quote, blow up or cyber retrenchment, funds will have no choice yeah. but to start to But move. do you think they start uh, rotating? Uh, so like, for instance, the sentiments have been so bad in financials and not just small caps, right? The regional banks, you know, so like, you know, the XLF is still down 20 some percent from its highs earlier this year. We know industrials have been weak. We know that, you know, small caps, to name a group, they, you know, energy stocks have come in. Some of these resource names have come in really hard. I mean, won't we need to see a broadening out away from just these top big tech names? Semiconductors have been on fire and NVIDIA is really the only one one that, that is a huge contributor to S&P 500. Like, wouldn't that be the trade, like, as we go into the summer that you're going to want to kind of stick your toe back in the water in some of these kind of unloved areas of the market? So this market has been brainless, meaning you just buy those 
big five, big seven, and you're and you, that you feel good about yourself, and you feel like you're participating in the market. Porter and Vinny will tell you because they left kind of financials. They still trade them, but they went into the energy. They went into the resources. You know what that does? It takes work. These aren't meme stocks. These are real companies, right, with balance sheets and cash flows and earnings. And that lost art, which I still believe is coming back to a theater near us on, on stock picking per se, is going to matter here. What I'm saying is that there's a lot of these macro traders, and I think people have made these S&P a macro trade. Like those five, seven stocks, that's a macro trade. Yeah. There's no bottom-up work where it's spitting out, let me go buy those. This is where can I put my money and feel okay that I'm not going to wake up. Now, let's bring up a point that we're going to get into you know, with Bianco here, is that you had a huge regional bank rally the last couple of days on Western Alliance gaining $2 billion, right? In, in deposits. In deposits, yep. right? Stemming the tide. So billion base or something like that. But the point is that they're paying 5% to get them, right? So that's the whole point about the aftermath of the bank crisis, right, is these companies' net interest margins, net interest income are going to suffer. And the follow-on the debt ceiling is that they're going to be a trillion-dollar hole that's going to be need to fill up, right, that's going to take liquidity potentially out of the market. But no one cares because they're trading on the event. So, yeah. it, you know. Well, it's, it's funny. You know, like you, you, I'm, I'm frustrated, Dan. I'm, I'm frustrated. Give me a breakout. Give me one direction or another, right? Yeah. Just, just It's not about being wrong or right, right? Well, it's just, I, it feels like you're about to get it. And I, I guess the point is, is like if McCarthy is right and they do have a bill on the floor and it's bipartisan and they could push this out, even if it's a, a few months or something like that, the S&P is going to gap you know, up, okay, whether it's, you know, 100 points, whatever the hell it is, right? And so at that point, that's the moment of truth. Can it hold those gains? Can it start building on those gains? Can the rally start broadening out a bit to some of these other sectors that might be um, a bit more cyclical, right? And less secular on an issue like AI is, seems to be the thing that's driving it. And you talk about frustration. I mean, last week, and I, I think I mentioned it on the pod, PayPal had a disappointing quarter in guidance. This is a stock that actually trades at 12 times earnings, Dan. It's expected to grow earnings and sales to double digits this year and next. It's got a good balance sheet there. And again, I get it. There's like margin, like compression and there's competitive issues and this, that, whatever. But to me, you know, this stock's down 85%. I know that they're looking for a new CEO or whatever. Like that looks like an opportunity to me. I started buying it at 68. I bought some more at 64. It's trading at 61. I feel like the dumbest guy in the market because I'm short NVIDIA that skips up 5% every day. <laughs> right. And I'm long this thing where right. no low is low enough. Right. And this thing looks like a chart, you know, like a bomb went off in it. Like it looks like 01, O2 sort of NASDAQ sort of stuff yeah. here. So, you know, I'm short one that's just going to the moon and I'm long one that's going to zero and that doesn't feel particularly good here. All right, last thing, guy all week, and I know you haven't talked to him all week, he's been talking about how your derby picks are still waiting to cross the finish line here, but we got the Preakness this week and I know you, you got some picks, but first things first, you know, you and I were just talking offline a little bit. You said there's some really interesting stuff going on in the sports betting space here. I know that you had an idea in the space, I think a couple months ago in some of the data players yeah. here, um, but talk to us, give us a little bit of an update because this seems like a kind of an under the radar sort oh, of good, idea good here. You see what I did there? Also, right? Okay, go, go for oh, it. Oh yeah. No. So a couple things been happening. So Michael Rubin from Fanatics, right? Who started GSI commerce yeah. years ago, back in the day, sold to eBay, then bought back one of the parts of the business from eBay that turned out to be Fanatics. Right, which is so he basically license has the license right to every major league sport. He sold his stake in the Sixers not too long ago so that he could move into sports gambling because you can't own an NBA team. Okay. So that so he launched a couple weeks ago Fanatic Sports Gambling. Now what he decided is he has ninety five million customers in his network, basically, and he's just going to figure out a way to target them. He so he's acquired, quote, acquired those customers. So DraftKings and FanDuel, they pay in Caesars, they pay a lot of money to quote acquire customers. We see the we see the bonuses. You took advantage of it a couple 
months ago or a year ago doing that. And that has since slowed down, by the way, I'll get to that in a second. What did he do the other day? He went and spent $150 million in cash on a company called PointsBet. They out of Australia, but in the US are the seventh largest online gambling site, right? So it immediately gets them into 15 states. So here he comes, right? And what's interesting about it is you can look at the quarter DraftKings, everything's kind of getting better. FanDuel, things are getting better. Caesars, MGM, those four players basically dominate you know, the market. But the key has been, they stopped spending so much money on advertising. And we are just at the beginning stages, again, from a macro basis on sports gambling. Think about this. California, Texas, and Florida are not legalized. Okay. Imagine one of those things happening, right? So he makes a transaction like that. I go back to who do I want to be in that space, right? I want to be the data providers. Who are the data providers? Sport Radar, Genius Sports. So Genius is G-E-N-I. It's about a billion market cap. And Sport Radar is a 3.7 billion market cap, S-R-A-D. Some of them have contracts with Major League Baseball. Some have the NFL, NHL, right? But, but, you know, between them, they basically, what they do is they sign these licensing deals with the leagues. They are data gatherers, so they get the license to the data, and then they create bets. So they're B2B, really, and they give them to these operators. These companies are becoming, first of all, free cash flow positive in the second half of the year for GENI. That's happening now. Because they did have to spend a lot on these on these deals, right, to get licensing, right? And Sport Radar is already there. You talk about AI, Okay, they've been using AI, sports gambling using AI. Talk about the potential to replace the geniuses that they have that are literally coming up with these the bets and using the data integrate. AI, that's something that works immediately, gets smarter immediately, and they talk about it. So you want to talk about a real application. So I own both those companies, SRAD and GENI. And I think there's a huge, huge opportunity. And if I'm a Google, I'm going to buy one of these companies, right? Especially if you get California, you need California, Texas, because, you know, again, regulatory stuff. But think about this. So if we're right about the economy and we're just going to languish around, right, these are generating tremendous amounts, just like cannabis, tremendous amount of revenue, right? Give Christie credit. Chris Christie started this whole thing in New Jersey, if you remember the lawsuit where he sued the federal government years ago and got a sole price. This is a boon. And we're at the beginning stages, Dan. I can tell you that people knew that I like horses. And it's right before the derby. I'll get into the preakness. I was getting texts and calls from like my kids' friends, and they're they're all gambling. Now that's not a great thing for me because I probably bail out my kid once or twice out of Wisconsin for for his gambling. But my point is that we're at the beginning stage. It's become a fabric of society for better or for worse. There's going to be you know again, it's not all great, right? Because there's going to be people. But any the genie's out of the bottle, so to speak. Yeah, right? you and mentioned so, you mentioned the sport radar. I think a couple months ago, the stock was uh, yeah, it was like a half size or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it was like twelve and a half. I would tell people this: they both just reported their quarter in the last few weeks. Go read the transcript. Go look at the number. No debt on these balance sheets. Cash on the balance sheets. Going to be generating free cash flow. So here you are sitting on a great macro trade and a great thesis. And if you don't want to own the operators, right? If you don't want to own the DraftKings, but look, all the charts look pretty good. I mean, look at that DraftKings chart, Dan. And a lot of the people out there that I think the short interest has, has dropped dramatically, the sector I'm looking at. So let's get into where that Preakness, leads me baby. to, you know, with, with the Preakness. So you have a horse, a Chad Brown horse. There's only eight horses, by the way, in the Preakness, unlike 18 in the Derby. So it's actually easier to handicap potentially. So you got Mage, who's the who won the Derby, who's in it, obviously, who's the favorite because you won the Derby. Why wouldn't you be? But Chad Brown has won this race last year at the Preakness, won it two of the last six years in the Preakness. And he has a horse named Blazing Sevens. Blazing Sevens' last race was the Bluegrass, and he came in third. But the two horses that beat him are not running in this. They ran in the Derby, Tabit Trice being one of them. Verifying was the other one. So it came in third, right? Six to one, this horse is. I'm going to make it simple, right? Blazing Sevens, which is a slot machine of some kind. I mean, that's, you know, so I love it already. It doesn't matter. Chad Brown horse, right? And he, the last two times that Chad Brown won the Preakness, his horse skipped the, the, the Derby. 
And so six to one right now, win, play, show, right across, That's make it, it simple. That's, That's it, blazing seven. All right, fair enough. Danny Moses, blazing seven, six to one. I'm going to take it. That's smart. Okay. I would do that. Okay. Stick around. Danny and I sit down with Jim Bianco of Bianco Research. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Welcome back to On The Tape. Danny and I are joined by Jim Bianco. Jim Bianco is the president and he is the macro strategist at Bianco Research. Jim, we know you well from CNBC. You've been coming on our program for a very long time. I think a lot of our listeners will know you from CNBC. So we really appreciate you being here. But we also want to get like take a step back a little bit about Bianco Research. You know, you come on, you're a really, really smart macro mind, but I actually don't know what Bianco Research does. I've seen it moved around the web. I've seen you quoted all over the, the financial media, but give us a sense of like w- what the firm is, when you founded it, what the mission was, and how it's kind of evolved over the last couple of decades. Well, the, the formal firm, Bianco Research, was founded in April of 98, so it just had its 25th anniversary. Wow, congrats. Um, and thank you. It, you know, it's like a restaurant. We're still in business, so therefore we're doing well, <laughs> yeah, right? right. <laughs> I, I really started with a brokerage firm, uh, a little bond brokerage firm in suburban Chicago called Arbor Trading Group, not related to Pat Arbor, who is the former um, chairman of the Chicago Board of Trade. And from 1990 to 1998, I worked there originally as a salesman and then eventually in the research department, and then they spun me off as my own firm. And they're still my affiliated company to this day. We provide macro research, mainly fixed income tends to more to lean itself towards macro than, say, equities. That's more micro. So a lot of our clients are fixed income, but not exclusively. We have clients you know, in Europe. We have clients in Asia. We have clients in the U.S. We have a, a pretty good foot in um, Canada. And when I say we, I mean Bianco Research and or the larger uh, brokerage firm called Arbor. So I'm also like a registered representative and stuff. So it's like a mini brokerage and firm. Do, and do you guys manage, you manage capital as an RIA also yourself? That's coming. We've had RIAs in the past, and we're hopefully going to have another one uh, coming with an ETF towards the end of the year. 
Wow. Right, so well, that's, 25 that's years. And I think Danny, you would agree. I mean, like we, like many of our friends, I, I've been in the business for 25 years. And I think most of the people that I started with in the business in 1997, have probably worked on average at like five firms. If you think about that, right? So right. there's always been a lot of movement. Talk to us a little bit about what you've been able to create from a branding standpoint. And I'm assuming that if you've had this sort of longevity with your firm, you've also had that sort of relationship with a lot of clients also. Oh yeah. There's a lot of clients that go back you know, to the nineties with me, some, you know, before the nineties, if I was to go back to when I really started my career was October 16th, 1987, I was 25 years old. I got an offer to go work in the equity research department of first Boston as an assistant to the technical analyst guy named Joe Generalis. Well, the next Monday was the big stock market crash. And I remember calling him up that Monday and saying, do I still have a job? And he said, well, at this point, I don't know if we still have a firm. And it turned out that they still had a firm and they hired me and I started November 2nd of 87. And I was like the last guy in. And they, um, they called me FIFO. First LIFO, last in, first out. And I remember once I was in a- um, that's, a in, great, that's a great nickname. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I remember once I was in, a, um, an, in an all research staff meeting and the director of research, a guy named Al Jackson, heard them call me LIFO. And he goes, they call you life while you last in first out. And he goes, ah, and he starts the meeting by going, you know, that's a great name for him, calling him life. I really like it. He goes, just, but just remember now, if I need to save money, he doesn't cost me anything. You do. <laughs> well, it's interesting. So you started at a time where you could be bullish and not have really have any risk on that point on that Monday, right? Or right. Tuesday after. So I was going to ask you, so when you spun out in 1998, you've seen some cycles. I've seen some cycles. Mm -hmm. Um, that was kind of subprime part one was happening. Fed was raising rates, like not too dissimilar from where we are now. We led into the kind of the tech bubble. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk about kind of the things that you've seen, including 1987 and then early 90s recession and then 98, 2000, leading up to the GFC and, and so forth. So let's bring it to today and then go back. How do you compare what's happening kind of right now to any other time period? Is there any other time period where you draw comparisons to? Well, it depends on, yes, there's several different things about several different time periods. I happen to think that we are in a post-COVID economy. That's a fancy word for meaning that COVID was more than just a disruption of what was going on until 2019. It actually changed the course of the economy. I would argue to you that the economy is now fundamentally different. And I use that word carefully. Different does not mean worse. It means different. It doesn't mean that it's going dystopian or anything. And we need to restructure the economy. And I'll give you one example. Work from home. Work from home is a real thing. I've spent some time with Nick Bloom of Stanford University and uh, Doric Polig, who's written a book about work from home. And to summarize it for you, pre-COVID, you were home, I was home two days a week, Saturday and Sunday. Now most people are in the office three days home too. Now you're home four days a week. You've doubled the amount of time you're at home. That has changed the fundamental nature of your lifestyle. We know this from 2021 and 22 when Omicron ended and all the retailers said, especially last year, okay, everybody's coming back to the store. So what do we put on the shelves? Same thing we put on the shelves in 2019. Well, we didn't buy stuff in those proportions and they wound up with gluts of inventory and shortages of inventory. And then they had to figure out that our lifestyle has changed. The supply chain needs to change. The attitudes about working from home need to change. Talking to you, Larry Fink, about like the seventh time you're trying to call people back to BlackRock. I think you should know that from the first six times, maybe the seventh time, we'll see if it works. And so the economy needs to restructure. So the most similar period to this would be 46, 47, right after World War II. The big difference was 
after World War II, we knew the economy had to restructure. We didn't no longer needed to make P-51s or Sherman tanks anymore. And we then proceeded to restructure the economy. We had a couple of recessions in that period. We had a bout of inflation. But by the early 50s, we were ready for a 20-year boom. The difference now, I'm not so sure everybody thinks that we need to restructure the economy. Oh, you just wait. Everybody's going to go back to the office. Dave Solomon of Goldman Sachs is, last year said, oh, by 2025, Midtown Manhattan will look like it just did in 2019. Now, I'm not saying that there will be no people in Midtown Manhattan, but I'm saying it's not going to be 2019 anymore. Things are going to have to change. So if you wanted to look at the economy, I'd say 46, 47 is the most you know, similar type of experience. And that led to inflation, a recession, another inflation boom, another recession, 20-year boom. That is part of the restructuring of the economy. I think we need to do that. You might call that reshoring or onshoring is part of that as well. In terms of the market- But that would be really inflationary. So like, one of the things I think is interesting is the push and pull that we've had. Back in 2019, when we had an economy that was starting to slow, there was real fear of like deflationary sort of pressures. And a large part of that was basically- automation, right? Remember, like there were conversations about universal basic income. What are we going to do? And it's kind of interesting that we're almost like kind of bookending that period with what we're doing right now or what is being perceived in the markets with AI and what the potential is for like job destruction there right now. So when I think about onshoring, which we learned a lot of lessons as it relates to national security and a whole host of other issues, right, over the last few years, there's a lot of really inflationary stuff that's still out there. Don't you think so, Jim? There's going to be this push and pull between what AI means for like the workforce, but also the change in demographics and the shifts that we've sort of seen that will not go back. But then also, if we really are going to reorient supply chains and manufacturing here in the U.S., that does have the potential in the near term to be very inflationary before we can get the robots making things. I agree. It does. And that period will lead to inflation. And I've been, you know, I'm an inflationista in that I think that the new level of inflation is three or four percent. It's not one or two. And will I'm, the Fed figure that out at some point? Will they start to signal that over the next year or two? You've been on our show numerous occasions just saying that that two percent, that prior goal that they wanted to get inflation up to pre-pandemic, right? Now the idea of getting it down to two percent doesn't seem particularly likely. And do they have to reorient, let's say, economists, strategists, investors, people of all sorts who are trying to figure out what the real rates are going to be going forward? Yeah, I do. I think they're going to have to. The problem I think that the Fed faces now is about a year ago, June of last year, when the inflation rate was 9%, Jay Powell was summoned to the White House and President Biden pointed at him and said, he's the guy who's going to make inflation go away. And he's been stuck with that 2% target. And he's also got a credibility issue there too. They've had this 2% target and they can't abandon it when it becomes uncomfortable because then it looks arbitrary. It is arbitrary. They made up that number, but now they're kind of stuck with it. But I think over time, we're going to have to realize that this is more of a 3 or 4% world, not a 2%. It's not Zimbabwe or anything. But what does that mean? That means that at a 5% inflation rate, if we have a recession, if the Fed has to cut rates, they're cutting it to 2 or 3. They're, they're, I don't think they're going back to zero. And they're not going to go back to massive QE, at least in this environment. So when we talk about what kind of stimulus can the Fed do, they don't have 500 basis points anymore. They have like 200 basis points if there's another downturn. And yes, we're going to be in a period of inflation. We're going to be in a period of higher rates. We're going to be nominally in a period of higher volatility in financial markets. Now, I say that because the VIX is low at 17. 
The stock market's very calm right now, but the bond market isn't. You know, the move index, which is the equivalent of the VIX in the bond market, had one of its highest readings ever in March, right after Silicon Valley Bank failed. And it's still very elevated right now. You're seeing still more financial market volatility, maybe not so much in stocks. If the Fed only has 200 basis points, okay, to ease in, in the event of some sort of crisis, maybe it's the debt ceiling gets tripped or something like that, you know, whatever the hell it is, or a recession that comes faster and harder and deeper than, than people expect, where's the 10-year go? Because right now, the spread between Fed funds and the 10-year, which is about 150 basis points, is pretty wide. And if you go back and you look at the last 30 years, when you've seen Fed funds get that far above the 10-year, we have seen the equity market crash twice, get cut in half, okay? We also had that situation heading into two, 2019 when the Fed was raising interest rates. What does that mean? Because we know that there's a lot of rates that are also associated with the 10-year, not just Fed funds. Right. I think that the 10-year doesn't have much more room to fall from here, maybe to 3%, where there is room for the market or interest rates is on the short end of the curve. The inverted yield curve with the much higher 410, 415, two-year note that could uninvert. That could go down below 3% on another slowdown, and then you wind up with a steeper curve as opposed to an inverted curve. The volatility will be in more in the five-year, more in the two-year. And that's really where I think that a lot of the plays and a lot of the things that in the bond market that people I talk to in the bond market are really struggling with is where there is extraordinary volatility is in the yield curve. I've had uh, bond people tell me about, especially in the last couple of months, after a, a, a particularly volatile day in the yield curve, they'll go, well, that was a good quarter, you know, just, just from what happened today in the yield curve. And you've seen these enormous moves in it. So the short end of the yields, they could come down a lot more. And that has big ramifications for bond investors, uh, anybody who's on the 40 leg of a 60-40 portfolio, for pension plans, for annuities, because a lot of those interest rates are where they set their assumptions. And if those rates are starting to move around like a meme stock, which is what the two-year has looked like at times, it's going to be um, a different type of world for them. So it creates a lot of dispersion and bond picking, I like to say, versus stock picking going on because marrying it back to your opening comment about the structural change in society, right? Office rents versus home rents or owning a home and using that as your home office. That part seems permanent. And the problem right now is the amount of commercial real estate, right, that needs to be refied that's coming up and it's, there's a lot of defaults already starting to occur, that structural change is leading to this bifurcation in the rates market. It's not as simple as, oh, the 10-year yield is here. Oh, I can, can get a cap rate of this. It's different now. People are actually looking at the bottom up. So now we're going to have these haves and have-nots, which is going to have a real impact on the economy. To your point about all these CEOs saying come back to work, I think they're just using it as an excuse if they have to start laying people off of as, as part of the reason, potentially, right? That's not hard to kind of figure it out. It makes but it easier if they're all exactly. in this room. But, you but, out, you out, right? But if there's been a structural change in the economy, then there's also a structural change you just mentioned in the bond market. So an inversion may not mean a recession. An inversion may just be something else. So when you talk about bond picking for stock picking, I want to hear your thought on that. And the other comment, and I think was a valid one you made, over these next two months, the comps for inflation look good or easier, so to speak, and then it gets hard again. Talk about that because it'll fit the narrative of the Fed's kind of done its job, but then it may kind of, you know, reverse course here. So, so. We, we talk about this um, thing called the base effect. And what that means is we all like to look at year-over-year -year changes of inflation. So we're going to get, next month, we're going to get the May inflation report. Well, what was inflation in May of 22? It was 0.9%. That was a very high number. What have we been averaging on inflation for the last few months? About 04 so we'll, 
probably print another 0.4. Maybe it's 0.5, maybe it's 0.3, depending on what crude oil and gasoline does. And we'll drop a 0.9. So the year-over-year inflation rate, which is 4.9, will probably drop to the low fours. June was 1.2 in 22. That was one of the highest numbers we've ever seen for June. We print another 0.4 in June. Now we've got the inflation rate in the low threes in 60 days, the year-over-year change. But then what happens in July? The July number was zero. We print a 0.4 there, it's going to go up. You know, in August, it was 0.4, but then September was a 0.2. And we've got a couple 0.2s and a 0.1. So all of a sudden, all of those comps are going to turn. And that's why I've said, leaving aside whether we have a recession or $50 crude oil or $150 crude oil, that will change it. But leaving that aside, the inflation rate's set to bottom. It's set to bottom in the low threes, high twos in the next 60 days. And then the base effect should have it go in an upward drift towards the end of the year. You layer on to that whatever crude oil does or if there's a demand slowdown because of a recession. And then there's going to be upward pressure on that inflation. Is it going to be enough to get the Fed to raise rates? Probably not. But it's definitely going to be enough to basically kill off any idea that there's going to be any kind of rate cut short of a big economic contraction, that the Fed is going to hold tight at this five to five and a quarter range. And then we're going to start to see the markets, I think, assert themselves. The two-year note might go well below the Fed funds rate. It might trade back to the Fed's funds rate. We're going to see a lot of volatility in these markets as we try to figure this out. Because what has been happening is we've got two things going on in the bond market at once. We've got an administered rate by the central bank. And like any administered rate where it's just a committee that invents it, they can get it wrong. And then we've got markets. The thing about markets is they can get it wrong too, but markets never explain, never complain. They, oh, we got it wrong. We're just going to a new level today and that's it. We're, and I don't have to tell you why, but the commit, and there's no ego. I don't have to explain why I was wrong. I'm just doing that. And we're going to fight this administered rate with market rates more than I think we've seen in the past. In the past, they were somewhat aligned, but in this new post-COVID kind of figuring it out world, I think the volatility in the bond market is going to stay much higher than people think. People are going to look to kind of play that and they're going to piecemeal certain things. It can be, I can paint a very bullish argument on that and I can paint a very bearish argument on that. So you're saying for a temporary period of time, obviously people will be excited that the Fed's done its job. They got the soft landing done because the economic data still looks quote decent and it right. does, right? It does. So how do you reconcile that? Because I can paint a soft landing scenario with the data you extract. You pointed out yesterday that retail sales, when they came out, because of the revision lower, all they did was keep up with inflation. Right. There was no net growth. So how do we get through this kind of, and how would you guide an investor? And, and on top of that also, I just want to talk about kind of the bank's role in all of this and the tightening cycle that's occurring just from the lending market. So let me take that last point first. You're right that if you were to look at the economy, where was I and where was maybe some of the consensus around March 5th, the day before Silvergate closed? The Fed's going to six. The economy's fine. We were using the phrase no landing at the time. You know, not a soft not, landing. Not, not us. Right. Yeah. <laughs> not, 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 not us. Not us. Not yeah. us. We, that, we didn't know those I, I only liked it because I thought it was, you know, it wasn't a soft landing. It wasn't a hard landing. The plane was just going to keep going yeah. is, what that, is what that meant. Torsten Slock. Yeah. Torsten Slock. Yeah. He, he yeah. came up with that yeah. phrase. Yeah. Yeah. So, that, so I was in that camp, and we're going to go to six. Now you've got this banking thing, and this is the wild card for the rest of the year. The bank... The banks are experiencing what I've referred to as a bank walk, not a run, a walk. And what is the walk? It is a rational decision by people to say, I don't want one basis point from Chase. I'm going to move to Chase Securities and put my money in a 4.8% money market fund. 
They're not doing it out of fear. They're doing it out of greed, if you want to think about it in those terms. And so as they continue to do that, the banks are going to continue to see deposit flight a little bit, little bit, little bit. Not enough to cause a bank to fail. There's 4,200 of them. I'm sure there's some very mismanaged banks, and one or two or three of them will probably still fail from here because they're mismanaged, and we don't know which ones they are. But this bank walk should not cause a bank to fail. But what it will do is pinch their net interest margins and their profitability. Their cost of funding is going up. Let me give you an example. Western Alliance, a bank that's a Phoenix-based bank that's in the news, you know, one of the regionals that's been very volatile, reported an update yesterday. And they said that they got $2 billion of deposit inflows since March 31st. They gave an update last week and they said it was 1.8. So they got $200 million of new deposits in the last week. And the stock's up 15% on the news. If you dig into their investor presentation, they will tell you that their cost of funding on December 31st was 80 basis points. Their cost of funding on March 31st was 2.27. And their cost of funding on May 12th, last Friday, was 2.76. Their cost of funding went up 200 basis points this year when the Fed raised rates 50. Why do they have $2 billion of deposits? Because if you go to their website, their deposit rate on a savings account is 5%. They're giving you 5%. So the bank walk people are not afraid of Western Alliance. They're giving me five. I'm in. It's really, really what it is. Now, if PacWest or if JP Morgan wants to give me five, I'm in too. Otherwise, it's Hello Money Market Fund or Treasury Direct to buy a treasury bill or something along those lines. Keep in mind too, five. The long-term average for the stock market is nine. You're getting two-thirds of the stock market with no risk. No risk at all. So that is become enticing. Or we could, for now, rest the idea of cash is trash because it's no longer trash. It is actually a competitive investment. Maybe the stock market's still better, but it's not zero, and five is a long way from that. So as you see these banks continue to see this walk and this profitability squeeze, the cumulative of that could be a credit crunch. I like your idea for a new apartment building. I think your numbers are good. The problem is my deposit base is unsure. I can't give you the loan. It's like breaking up, right? It's not you. It's me, you know, and stuff like that. That's what the bank is going to tell you. And this could then be a real problem for the economy. One other fun statistic, which I got from Torsten Slock, too. One third of the American workforce works for a company of less than 100 employees. Half the American workforce works for a company of less than 500 employees. I actually am in the camp that these 4,200 banks that we have is a strength of the U.S. economy, not a weakness, because these small companies, 500 or less, need financial services, loans, payment services, and they get it from a bank that is closely aligned with them, a small or regional bank. They know them personally. They help them with their business. That is better than having four banks with 8,000 branches each. Somebody gave me a great metaphor of it. He said, yeah, it's, it, it would be like if we decided that all independent restaurants are bad. We want five restaurant companies, each with 5,000 franchises. You think we'd be happy with that? No, it'd be terrible. It would be just food then at that point. It wouldn't actually be a dining experience. If we only had four banks, it would just be money. It wouldn't actually be financial services. So if these banks continue to see this walk and continue to say, I'm sorry, my deposit base is a problem, cumulatively by the end of the year, that could be a real problem for the economy. 
That's where the job growth is in those small and medium-sized companies. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you look at the Russell 2000, it's basically flat on the year versus a NASDAQ that's up almost 20% on the year. We have an S&P, and this is, I want to get to this, S&P is up 8.5% eight on the year, okay? And let's just talk about that whole scenario that you said. On average, the S&P or, or the stock market rises 9%. So you're basically, you can go money good, 5%, right? Like, right. you know, and take out a whole heck of a lot of risk. And let's just talk about the risk in the stock market. If we look at the equal weight S&P right now, okay? So we're basically four and a half months through the year, it is flat, okay? And we have the S&P, like I just said, up 8.5%. The top five stocks, and I know this is a, a topic near and dear yeah. to your heart, in the S&P are the top five or six, make up about 25% of the weight of this index of 500 stocks. Those stocks on average make up $6.5 trillion in market cap, all right? right? And they're on average up about 30% on this year. Right. Now, I would say all of the risk in the entire stock market has been placed in a half a dozen stocks right now that are in whether you believe or don't believe the hype around AI and how it's going to transform our economy, our industries, the global economy, all of the above. Okay. And that's something I think we can all agree on 20 years out. If you are optimistic on that transformational sort of shift that we're on, we can all agree on that's going to happen. Whether it's being reflected adequately in the stock market right now is a totally other thing. So talk to me a little bit about that concentration and what it means at a time where there is an alternative to equities. And also, I mean, the equity market doesn't seem to be bothered by a new inflation rate that we're going to settle on. And the fact that you just mentioned that interest rates are going to be higher for longer, just on a, a natural basis here. On the last part, I'll push back a little bit and say it is bothered by it, because if you look at the FANG stocks, throw in Microsoft, NVIDIA, Tesla, the top eight, that is more than all of the gains in the stock market this year. And if you look at the other 492 stocks, they're down. No, we agree on that. Okay, right. so that's why I mentioned the Russell, okay, right. to your right. point. Yeah. And that's why, so I agree, but the major averages are not, and right. all the risk has been transferred, let's say, into these 10 stocks. That's true, yeah. that's true. And as these 10 stocks move higher, you're right, it's partly driven by this hype for AI. There's a great metaphor in history for this. If you go back to 99, Time Magazine covered Man of the Year was Jeff Bezos. And it was the coming revolution of online retailing. What happened right after that? Within weeks after that, we had the Pets.com Super Bowl. And within a year, Pets.com was out of business. Amazon stock, right after he was on the cover in 99, fell 94%. It went from $100 to 6 If you were completely bought into this idea that online retailing is going to be the greatest thing and it's going to transformationalize everything. Pets.com lost you 100%. Amazon lost you 94% in 18 months. You probably gave up on it. And then Amazon went from six to 3,300 and online retailing has transformation everybody. So when I look at AI, I think, man, the same thing can happen here. You know, we're all completely correct about what's going to happen to AI. First step, we're going to lose 90% of the value in all these stocks, and then they're going to 100x right after that. And that's the thing you have to be careful of, that we got so far ahead with the hype on online retailing in the late 90s, and we got so far ahead with the hype on AI, which is this concentration in the market, it makes it vulnerable. And if these stocks blow up on this idea, you know, there's a big down, not blow up in upside, but on the downside, on this idea that we've overdone it, yeah, on the stocks, but that doesn't mean if after all of these FANG stocks start falling apart because the AI hype is overhyped, 
doesn't mean it is. It's still, I think, going to be a transformational thing. It's just we got way ahead of ourselves with it right yeah, now. Yeah, isn't it amazing, though? Sam Altman, who runs OpenAI, right? So this is the company that has literally fueled maybe three-quarters of a trillion dollars in market cap gains in Microsoft alone, given their investment and their tie-up with that technology and how they're going to be using it across their platforms, was in front of Congress yesterday, basically begging for regulation. And so think about one of the overhangs for these major platform companies for the last 10 years, last 20 years has been regulation. It's one of the reasons why some of them have traded below a market multiple at different times. And I just think that the fact that all of these people piling into these stocks, which we all know what their earning streams look like, we know what their businesses are. They have these monopolies. They have these huge moats. And I get it. They will become more productive. It will increase margins over time, that sort of thing, and give them opportunities in different markets that we couldn't possibly imagine, but not right now. And so if you're going to front load that, that is risky, but it also the potential for some sort of regulatory action that really slows it down, that maybe puts it on the forefront that these stocks are overvalued. They're basically not discounting all of the hurdles that we know are going to come in these transformative technologies. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And one of the things about transformative technology, we seem to make the same mistake over and over again. Um, going back to the banks, I've said the transformative technology that they're now starting to come to grips with is mobile apps. For 10 years, we didn't have to worry about mobile apps because all rates were at zero, so no one did anything. But what did we do in 10 years? We got 120 million people a month using a mobile app, and they learned to do two things, transfer money and pay bills. Well, transferring money is moving my money from a savings account to a money market account, which is now all of a sudden when the Fed starts raising rates 500 basis points in a year and opens up that giant gap between deposit rates and money market rates, everybody's doing it on their phone. I can remember March 10th, just as a quick one, when Silicon Valley was coming apart, CNBC had uh, a camera in front of their office outside of San Francisco, and they were waiting for the bank run, for people to line up. And it was like one guy in a walker, basically, because everybody was home on their phone. Guy moving Adami. 100 yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, Guy Adami still literally goes to the bank teller. He does that. He's that guy. And he actually like likes those little things. He drives up to it sometimes. What are yeah. those little like those, tubes that you yeah, put, you the, put thing the thing tube, in? Tubes. Yeah, I think he just it's just, yes, yeah. it just it harkens back to right. a, a different time That's there. Funny. So does he does he put his passbook in there so they yeah. can stamp yeah. it with the new number? He's that and old stuff. school. So so, yeah. so but back, I was gonna say that that technology yeah. is is what changed. And that's what's that's what's going to happen here with $42 billion in 24 hours and would have been another $100 billion right, in the next 24 right. hours. And I, think, you know, and I think that that's what's going to happen with AI. The mistake we make is we say, oh, look at this new technology. And Brian Moynihan said this in his, uh, in his earnings call. We're going to use it to reduce costs and increase our margins. Yes, and it will do that. And it will do a lot more than that. It will completely change the very nature of your business. Ask your newspaper friends. They thought, hey, we don't have to cut down trees anymore. We could cut our costs in delivering these newspapers. Yes, and it changed the very nature of journalism because we opened up the Internet and, and then eventually with social media. So there is going to be a lot more than just pruning around the edges to widen out margins. Whole business models are going to change. Bob Gordon of Northwestern University wrote a great book about technology, and he says that technology is a net creator of jobs. But the biggest problem that we have is when, in, think about automated driving or, or uh, driverless cars. The minute that a new technology comes in, oh, there's 6 million people that are going to lose their job because of driverless cars. There's 20 or 30 million new jobs that do not exist, industries that do not exist, that will be created because of that. It's hard for me to tell you what that industry is. It's easy for me to tell you what the job is. And I'll give you one quick example. When Steve Jobs held up the iPhone 1, 
back in 2006. Raise your hand if you said, that's the end of the taxi industry within three years. That's, that's going to transformationalize the hotel industry within three years. You had no idea. But that's what new technology does. So we get it on who's going to lose, and we get it on how to, we could maybe increase our margins, but we don't get it. And it's going to go a lot further than that. It, that's just the beginning, and that's what's going to happen with AI. So one of the other sectors back to 1999 was, you know, E-Trade, Ameritrade, and Schwab, right? Which, right, which came on. And if you marry that with what's happened in the last few years with kind of the structural changes you mentioned and people being at home and getting stimulus payments and so forth was this FOMO, right? The fear, the fear of missing out on the markets and the fear of missing out on AI. You'll have certainly the behemoths, Google and Microsoft will be around and some what, what they're going to earn in AI will you know, remains to be seen. There'll be a lot of other companies, to your point, that'll be hyped and go, go by the wayside. Let's bring it to the debt ceiling, and I'm, I'm bringing the FOMO to the debt ceiling. People decide to trade on various things in the market on a day-to-day -day basis. They may mm -hmm. take the S&P down 1%, up 1.5%, down on whatever the flavor of the day is, right? right? But inherently, people are bullish, and inherently, it's fear of missing out to the upside, not of the downside. My problem with this debt ceiling issue is it'll get resolved, obviously, in some capacity because we can't default. We won't default. Right. But people aren't taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture of $32 trillion in debt and now paying a much higher rate on that going forward. The impact, no one cares because people are managing their money for the hour and for the day to the point. Right. When will that start to matter, right, in terms of the rate that we're paying on our debt for this country of $32 trillion is going to eat up a larger percentage of whatever money we have in the stash at the Treasury? Those issues don't matter right now, but do you think about that in the structural oh, yeah. change? In, in fact, I, I would argue that they're starting to matter right now. Recently, I read a story like yesterday that debt service now has now surpassed the Defense Department budget. It is not going to go down in the next couple of years, even if the Fed cuts rates because of the reinvestment risk. There's a lot of notes, five-year notes that have two years left and stuff that were issued with a one coupon on them. And they're going to mature and they're going to come out with a four or a five coupon afterwards. And those rates are going to continue. That average rate is going to continue to go higher for the next couple of years. And that is going to then eat up more and more of the overall budget that U.S. Congress has. And then they're going to feel a need to either raise taxes or to be even more aggressive because we want to have these programs expand with the inflation rate, which is not 4% or 3 not 1%. We want to increase these other new programs. Oh, but then we also got to pay all this extra debt money too. And so there's going to be this big push to continue to do that. And it's going to make government bigger, and it's going to make government um, more in the markets and in our lives as well. Now, that can be good and that can be bad. But it isn't going away. So, yeah, it, I think it, it definitely matters. I think that's what the Republicans are trying to argue with the debt ceiling. You know, whether or not they, that gets any kind of traction, they're getting some right now, but not as much as they were probably hoping. That's just my guess. But I agree with you on the larger issue. The markets are largely of the opinion that this is political theater. I am, too. This is the way it always gets done. You know, if it's June 1st is the X date, the date that they have to raise it, it'll be 4 a.m. on June 2nd that they finally get come up to it a deal. And that's what we expect. But if you ask people in Washington, oh, it's like 50-50, we're going to default. But if you ask people in the market, it's like 3% we're going to default. I also think this huge overhang is this quantitative tightening, which I know is going to be ending at some point very soon, $8.5 trillion worth of stuff, and most of that made up of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, which really started this whole thing where the banks idiotically went out even after the Fed told you they were going to do quantitative tightening and started buying these securities. Well, you have a huge behemoth here who is a net seller. 
that can't continue in my opinion because of what I just mentioned, because of cost of finance things, right? Credit spread. So what's your take on kind of QT and when does it stop? Well, I think that the Fed is afraid of their balance sheet when it got to $9 trillion, you know, we got this monster here and uh, we don't like it. And then they announced that they were going to reduce it by $95 billion a month. That's quantitative tightening. And they don't sell anything. What they do is they have more than $100 billion that matures, and then they just they reinvest less $95 billion. They're very happy that they've been under this for a year, and they just want to say, look away, don't talk about it, let's just let the balance sheet continue to go down and down. But your point is well taken that somebody's got to pick up that 95 billion slack every month. That is the private sector. So there's a bigger demand for bonds in the private sector. There's an old adage in the bond market. There are no bad bonds. There's only bad prices. I can fund anything you want in the bond market. You might not like the interest rate. I'll have to do it at. So the problem with the bond market is it can crowd out. If you're saying, who's going to buy that 95 billion extra a month? Somebody will. How? Well, we'll just keep raising it. We'll lower the price, raise the interest rate until we attract, until we suck money out of somebody else to get that funded. And then when we suck money out of somebody else, they got a problem, but then they've got to make a better deal and it kind of just daisy chains on down the line. But the problem is the mortgage-backed securities are not prepaying. And so they literally have to be net sellers to achieve the $30 billion or whatever is a month of mortgage-backed securities, which is really creating an issue in the market, in my opinion, because you, they can't run those off. They aren't running off, right, I don't believe. Right, right, right. Because interest rates are so high, everybody's got a much lower mortgage rate, so that nobody is refinancing anymore because there's no lower rates. The only new mortgages you're getting are from house sales, and those are even slowing down because the combination of higher mortgages and higher prices over the last couple of years has made the average monthly payment for a house like 50% higher than it was two or three years ago. So you're right that on the 30 billion side, you know, it's 60 billion of treasuries that they roll off. Those will continue to roll off. On the 30 billion side, that's going to be more of a difficult slog for them. And that's really where their problem is with QT. Because at the end of the day, I think if you were to put the Fed or Jay Powell under truth serum, oh man, what a mistake it was to basically buy all of those mortgages. Housing market was going ballistic, home prices were going vertical, and you were just sucking up mortgage securities, holding down mortgage rates as low as possible, helping to fuel that boom, which peaked about a year ago in home prices. And now you're stuck with the other side of it. They would have been better off just sticking with treasuries. Finish off with the stock market here because we talked a little bit about it, but let's talk about just valuation here. I mean, we're literally, I mean, we, you know, we quote the facts that data from our main man butters all the time. I mean, you know, the S&P right here at 18 times or so is above basically, I mean, it's in line with the five and 10 year average. You know, when you think about the pace in which rates have gone higher, you think of what the economy is doing here. I think we can all kind of agree that it is slowing here. The lack of certainty we have on the geopolitical front and all the disruption that we've had over the last few years with supply chains and the stuff that we just talked about is going to be net inflationary on the margin going forward here. The stock market just doesn't seem, again, it doesn't seem to be bothered by any of it. The S&P was down 20% last year. It's up 8.5% this year. We know all of those gains are in about eight or nine stocks or right. so. How does this resolve itself? Because, you know, folks like us, we sit here and we say to ourselves, the complacency is really high. Even if we have some sort of deal that kicks the can down the road for the debt ceiling, there needs to be a little bit more fear in the market before we resume another bull market, if you will. I, I'm still in the camp that this is just a nice old-fashioned bear market rally here because I don't believe the stock market is going to bottom before the recession.
recession happens. So I'm just curious, what is your take on that? Yeah, so starting with the valuation side, you're right. The forward P.E. ratio on the S&P at about 18 is about dead average. If you look at a lot of the other major numbers, you'd say that the stock market is about average valuation. It's not too high. It's not too low. It's the Goldilocks valuation. So does that mean that the stock market is attractive? Well, it depends on what your outlook is. If you believe the consensus on Wall Street that by the end of the year we're going to be in recession, I don't want to pay 18 right in front of a recession, 18 times earnings right in front of a recession. If you are of the opinion, oh, this is year three of a 10-year expansion because all the other expansions are 10 years, I'll pay 18 for that. But so really, where are we in this? Now, if you look at Wall Street's estimates for earnings growth for the second and third quarter, they're expecting negative earnings growth as well. So I don't want to pay 18 in front of negative earnings growth as well. So the problem with the market is not that it's expensive. It's just that in the environment and the expectations that we have, it's not offering me a deal. When you said fear, yeah, what I'd like to see is I'd like to see a 12 or a 13 or maybe an 11 or 10 forward PE. Then I could say, I don't even care if there's a recession. I'll buy this at these prices. And to be fair, there's probably a couple hundred stocks in the S&P 500 that do trade at 12 or 13 times, which is the point that you made earlier about it. And it really, it, it does come back to your outlook. And that's why I guess I come back to the fact that I'm fairly certain that the enthusiasm in these six or $7 trillion worth of stocks that are representing all of the excess multiple in the S&P, all of the returns, that that is something that will correct itself. And so the question is, is whether we have small taps, which are like cyclical and, and, and maybe they come back up and then we start seeing some of the value sectors within the S&P pick up some of the slack. I just don't see it happening before we have a confirmed recession. Yeah, I agree. And you brought with your question, you, you brought up another argument that I've been making from 2007 through 22. This was a macro ETF-driven market. Just buy spiders, forget it, you know, or, or let's just, let's time spiders. I think we're going to go back to something that was closer to what we saw in the 90s and 80s. It's going to be the return of the stock picker. Now, maybe it won't be the stock picker like the 90s or 80s, but it may be rotational with all the ETFs that you have to start thinking about, you're right, if we have that downturn, that the S&P might struggle because you might have 27% of the S&P, those big nine stocks, falling out of bed. And I want to, I want to rotate in and buy the Russell. I don't want to be The Russell, burdened. China. There's, there's yeah. things that you could do R from Russell, evaluation. China, or, yeah, yeah. or if you want to start looking at the sectors, I could, ro I could rotate into healthcare or I could rotate into industrials or out of financials or something. That has been kind of a lost art form for the last 15 years because it was just one-way street, just own the market, or don't own the market. Uh, and now it's going to be more about sector selection. It's going to be more about cap selection. It could even be on, on a stock selection basis. As I like to say carefully, depending on who I'm saying this to, everybody thinks they're a stock picker, but no one's had to do it for 15 years. So it's kind of like after you've not exercised for 15 years, the, yeah, the first thing that happens is you're sore and you hate it and you do it all wrong. And it's going to take some time for us to kind of get back into that mode. And it's really difficult right now to sometimes tell people that because they still think that my universe is one security, SPY, and it's this way up or down is, uh, is what I'm pointing at. And that's all that I really need to focus on because that's all that really needs to matter. But I can remember the 80s and 90s when I could tell you right now, a funny story was one of the first times I was on CNBC was 
in 96, and it was with Kramer. And it wasn't Kramer's show. Kramer was one of the guys on the show, and he was interviewing me. And he was really bombastic back then. And I was talking about the general level of the stock market. And he kept screaming, people can't buy the stock market. I need names. I need names. Right. Well, in 96, that was true. But in 2023, it's, I don't want names. I want, uh, what do I buy? Funny, to this day, I think he hates ETFs. He likes names still. So Yeah, we're right. old school like that. I would tell yeah. you that if, I know it's college graduate season right now, and some people are getting jobs on Wall Street and here and there and banks and stuff. And my feeling is the real lost art is high yield. The real lost art is doing credit analysis. Credit hasn't really mattered. Rates have been so low for so long. We talked about it earlier right. in this interview. And to me, that's going to be the basis of everything going forward. Because when you look at these companies that are kind of in the Russell, the small caps that are out there that have a little bit of debt, people are kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Well, maybe their coverage is fine on their cash level. Maybe these bonds is what people should be buying. And that will lead to these stocks kind of rallying over time. So I'm looking for screening companies which have a decent amount of debt, but they cover it with cash flow that will get the opportunity in the future that people aren't doing that work anymore. That is completely lost, in my opinion. Yeah, and so you know, the credit analysis work is definitely waning. And one of the things that really hurt that, I think, was coming out of 2020. When we had the uh, pandemic, one of the first things the Fed did, they bought high-yield ETFs, they bought corporate bonds. So when people look at bond spreads, they go, you know, there's probably been a chart you've seen on social media that shows the senior loan officer survey, and it shows tightening credit, and then it overlays it with high-yield spreads, and they, and they all move perfectly lock-stack. But all of a sudden, credit got really tight, but uh, corporate spreads haven't widened. And it's like, because, um, and I'll quote Bob Michael, who's head of fixed income at uh, J.P. Morgan. He said, buy high-yield because I'm co-investing with the Fed. Because, you know, I've got a guy with a printing press over here that's going to make sure that nothing bad happens to me. And that might be one of the reasons why corporate spreads are being depressed so much. Because why should I worry about it? Because the last cycle, when it got wavy, they printed money, they bought the ETFs and they bought the bonds to make sure that they didn't widen out too much. And so there's that belief, I still think, that lingers out there. You can't get too bearish on credit because you got the Fed on your side when it comes to credit. Stock market guys, you might be somewhere else, but uh, you might only get oh, indirect. Oh, the stock market guys, they'll get You'll get, get indirect Don't help. Worry. You'll get indirect yeah. help by, the, by us well, supporting and they, the credit and, market. And they did in, in, the, in buying those corporate uh, bond ETFs. So listen, uh, you know, for some of you guys who say that all we do is bring on bears and we're not particularly constructive here and there, I thought that was like a really – you know, balanced conversation. I think you brought up a lot of great points that, again, challenge some of our assumptions. That Guy Adami, if he was here, he'd say, I'm trying not to be dogmatic here, but everything that we see is not, it, it just doesn't look that great right now for yeah. like, to, to, to be like, to, here's, deploying here's, new capital. Here's my takeaway from this conversation. I don't think you're bullish by any means. As a matter of fact, I think you emboldened me a little bit more on the bear side. <laughs> but the, what the market's been doing and staying in this range for the last six to seven weeks, which is the tightest range we've seen in a very long time, it may be one of those frustrating things for a period of time. It could be three, six months. You may never get the crash. You may never get the blowout route that happens. We just grow into this thing over time. That, to me, is not a great money-making scenario over time, but lends itself to what you said before about kind of cash and so forth. That might happen here. I mean, there's right. a possibility that happens. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, what I was going to say is, as a macro guy, pre-19, the question was at the beginning of the year, okay, and I'm kind of summarizing it, some big asset class is going to go up 20% this year. Is it going to be U.S. stocks? Is it going to be the bond market? Is it going to be emerging markets? Is it going to be international? Is it going to be the currencies? Is it going to be commodities? Something's going up 20% this year. Where do I put my money to get that 20% regain? And then I said, but now the answer is nothing 
But there's going to be tremendous opportunity if you stop thinking of the world as six or seven asset classes and you start going down the next level. You know, is commodities going to be a, a place to, to, to be? Maybe, maybe industrial metals might be, but maybe energy won't be or vice versa. But stop thinking of it as big C commodities and start thinking about it as individual things. Is developed market stocks going to be a good place to be? Maybe industrials are going to be a good place to be. Maybe basic materials are going to be a good place to be. Financials haven't been. And like I said, we haven't thought about it in those terms. And if we start thinking about it in those terms, there's plenty of opportunity. But I hate to say it this way, but if you want to be lazy and just say, which, which asset class is going to go up so I can go buy the MSCI World Index or I can buy the S&P and forget about it because it's going to go up, that environment or that era is over. We're in a different era, but that doesn't mean that there's not opportunities to make money. All right, Jim Bianco, you are the president and macro strategist at Bianco Research. We really appreciate you coming by our offices and having this conversation with us. We hope you'll come back. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.